A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Hello, and welcome to the Deeper Look Podcast. I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI360, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Roland Schatz, a leader in the field of media impact and an expert on the sustainable development goals, which have been the topic of this podcast series in 2017. Roland, thanks very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure being here. Roland is Senior Advisor to the UN Director General in Geneva, Michael Muller. Yes. And he's the founder and CEO of Media Tenor, which is a media research and analytics organization that you founded in 1993, is that correct? Yes. I'd love to hear a little bit about that because there's been a lot of progression in the use of media over the last 25 years and um, I'm sure you've got great insights there. You've also created and implemented the Perception Change Unit for the UN in order to help people in the world better understand what the UN is all about. And now, working as a senior advisor, you've founded the Global Sustainable Index Institute. I'm very interested to hear about the work of the Global Sustainable Index Institute and how it is seeking to hold all of us accountable for implementing the SDGs. So, if you don't mind, let me just ask about media tenor. What kind of changes have you seen in the last 25 years in how media is influencing the development community and the way we, we carry out development? What issues we focus on and how we, how we approach them? Yeah, thank you. Um, Basically, nothing has changed. Ah! (laughs) We still are human beings. It's difficult, especially for guys in Silicon Valley, to accept that uh, because they deeply believe in artificial intelligence. But at the end of the day, we are still Patrick and Roland. And what defines us is that we tend to follow what we see. So what we don't see, we are not aware of. And what we don't see and what we don't read we can't respond to and we can't react to. Mm -hmm. So if you ask me what has changed over the last 25 years, in some respect, nothing has changed. In another aspect, a lot has changed. What has not changed is that if you don't make it into the New York Times, if you don't make it into the Wall Street Journal, if you don't make it into what we call the opinion leading media, Mm -hmm. you don't exist. And that's not only true for the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and the primetime news of Fox or ABC. It's as well true for Le Monde in France, um, and it is true in my country where I was born in Germany, and it is true all over the world. Mm-hmm. Few influence the others, and in that respect, nothing has changed. And in contrast to the good public relations work of Facebook and the social media, They only manage here and there on an anecdotal base, but not on a scientific base, to replace Wall Street Journal or Washington Post in their position as opinion-leading media. That's interesting. I want to delve into that a little. But what you're talking about is an old adage in politics that said, if it's not covered in the media, it didn't happen. 
That's the reason why we were the only one predicting the Brexit. Uh -huh. Not because we are smart, but because we have 110 analysts who do nothing else than watching BBC, reading the Financial Times day after day after day. And the result is that over 15 years, the continent where I live, Europe, mm -hmm. is not existing in BBC oh, primetime uh -huh. news. That tells you everything because as long as the Brits talk about us as the continent, it's clear that they never belong to us. Mm -hmm. And because they never belong to us, it became part of the DNA of a BBC journalist to not cover what didn't belong to them. Right. So our metrics, when you analyze story after story after story, day after day after day, you find out that in all year 2015, it was less than 0.4% stories on the continent. Wow, that's fascinating. You mentioned that with the rise of social media, that you don't see social media as really replacing these main opinion influencers and, and opinion makers. But it seems like a lot of commentary right now about the rise of social media is that social media has created a 24-hour news cycle and that it really is the leading edge of shaping public perception. So I'd like to have your, your view on that. Well, the advantage and at the same time the curse of being an academic is I need to see it in numbers. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing the friends from social media logically since five years, 10 years, 15 years, telling this story. But I was asked, for instance, by Amr Musa to um, do a conference three months after Arab Spring. Uh -huh. Because our friends from the social media said, we did it. Right. And so Amr said, Roland, you are the only one on a global scale who has data. Come, let's have a conference and let's discuss these effects. And we did the analysis and I have to say, sorry, but it wasn't the social media. It was mainly Al Arabiya and Al Jazeera, the primetime TV guys in that region who then, yes, picked some of the um, YouTube videos. Uh -huh and took these YouTube videos into their primetime news program. But those were three or five or ten. But they were not the two billion which you can upload on YouTube. But th isn't that what the advocates of social media, the, the people who see social media really shaping perceptions today would say is that Facebook has over a billion, maybe two. over two billion users and uh, over a billion of those go on Facebook every single day. Or if you think about the way that Twitter has disrupted U.S. politics in the last year, where you have the president using Twitter to make policy pronouncements and to really shape public opinion um, and to rally his base around his agenda, wouldn't that indicate that the rise of social media as the primary or as a primary shaper of public perception? Um, you need to differentiate between two things. Yes, um, social media, Twitter and Facebook, they became institutions media write about. That's true. And they write about more on f about Facebook than they, for instance, do on FHI 360. We're trying to change that. Though. And I'm all <laughs> for that. It's still the New York Times writing about somebody, and it is not 
YouTube or Facebook or all the other social media having become the space where opinion leaders go to to form their opinion. Yeah. That hasn't changed. Yeah, that's interesting. And that is, um, there's an important book if you want to understand who drives others and the theory behind it is called the agenda setting theory developed by Don Shaw and Max McCombs at Chapel Hill yes. in 68. Well, what people see matters, what they don't see is not existing. Uh -huh. That's rule number one. But the question is who defines what they are seeing? And in order to do what we do, we predict basically elections or referendum or right. other things. And we are able to predict this based on a certain set of influential platforms, if you want to yeah. call them, mm -hmm. because social media so far are nothing else like a petrol station. <laughs> a petrol station is where you go and you can buy um, in, in this uh, kiosk, you can buy a cigarette and you can buy a newspaper and you can buy chocolate. Right. It's just a platform. Mm -hmm. And the social media, not one social media so far, has proven empirically that they have replaced any of those lighthouses which the people are using when they want to inform themselves about politics or business or something like that. It's all about numbers. It's a science. We used to do ABC, CBS, NBC. Looking at these three, I could tell you what the Americans are going to do. Right. But these three were so the same yeah. that we took out ABC mm -hmm. and replaced it with Fox. Yeah. And then we were more accurate. But let me come to that point when we speak about the 25 years. Everybody's talking about Fox and there are good reasons to do that because we have similar developments not only in America but for instance in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. But the reason that Fox exists is only because ABC, CBS, and NBC didn't do their job. Well, Fox News would agree with you on that. ABC, CBS, and NBC were cutting from the agenda relevant topics like what is the current status of a senior citizen in America? Mm -hmm. This topic is not existing. Senior citizens get visibility in American primetime news of less than 0.2%. Uh-huh. American students, young people, get visibility of less than 0.1%. So if these relevant participants of society, if they don't exist, what is going to happen? They are looking for something else. Right. Now, what I'd like to ask you about is the institute that you founded at the UN, the Global Sustainable Index Institute. Now, my understanding is that that you set that up at the request of the UN as a way of measuring progress towards the SDGs and in particular holding stakeholders accountable for contributing to the achievement of the SDGs. But can you tell us about the Institute? Yeah, it's basically Michael Muller who among others had a certain fatigue listening to corporate leaders talking about sustainability and especially talking with guys representing the finance sector, mm -hmm. um, talking about sustainability and in today's world we would call it the SDGs, and then realizing that nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. The percentage of money invested in companies who are really run under sustainable principles, that was 3 to 6% in 1990. 
depends on how you define Wait, sustainability. Yeah, I was going to say, are you talking about environmental sustainability or are you using a broader uh, definition? I'm, I'm using a, a broader definition, but the ones who are more hardcore, that will be 3%, and the ones who are more broader, that will be 6%. Uh -huh. But still, 6% is the big nothing compared to 94% of all money going into stocks in those companies who are more or less ignorant right. on sustainability. Right, right. And if you look into the same numbers in 2016, unfortunately, we have the same 3 to 6%. Wait, wh and what's the baseline from what year? 1990. So basically no progress. But Michael Muller and Kofi Annan, they were both very dedicated to see change in place. And Kofi Annan, especially together with Michael Muller, he started the Millennium Development Goals. He started UN Global Compact in order to get change in place. And we are a group of, I don't know whether you ever saw the, the movie Space Cowboys. Yeah. Um, so so what, we do, what, what we do is, is basically Space Cowboys 2. Uh, we are a group of old guys who are frustrated that nothing happened. And Michael Muller invited all these 20 uh, to the Palais de Nation in Geneva in um, spring 2014. And he said, the likelihood that the SDGs are going to be signed is pretty high. In case they are signed, let's use this as our big momentum, where we will hold the corporate world as well as the governments accountable on whether they continue only to talk or whether they deliver. Mm -hmm. Because in case these heads of states are going to sign these 17 sustainable development goals and not only signing them but have a global understanding that by 2030 we have to reach no poverty SDG 1. Mm, we have to poverty. reach um, no hunger. We have to reach health for everybody, which is your big theme. Yeah. We have to reach education. We have to reach gender equality. I don't know what, what Angela Merkel drove by signing, in 2030 we will have gender equality in Germany. We are far, far, far away from that. But the fact that she signed it made it come real because she signed it on my behalf. I'm a German citizen living in Switzerland. She signed it for me. She signed it for all the other Germans as President Obama signed it on behalf of every American. And in this case, 194 nations made that commitment. Exactly. Only two didn't, and they were not allowed into the country. Otherwise, they would have come as well and have signed. Uh -huh. So we have this moment, the, the only moment in history. At the same time, we all understand this seems to be the big nothing. Because if 193 heads of states come together and sign something which seems out of reach, what does that mean? And now let me end with a personal experience. I was, I was 22 years old um, and I had to listen to the Minister of Science of East Germany at the German big trade fair in Hannover and he gave a speech on um, how fantastic science is in East Germany mm -hmm. and because they are so fantastic the whole world wants to see these communist scientists and they are at Harvard and they are everywhere. And a normal journalist reaction, I'm fifth generation journalist, would have been going after him and say, how dare are you even talking about this nonsense? You know it is totally false. I didn't do that. I walked up to him and I said, Professor Gasha, I think what you just said needs to be printed. And usually no Western magazine would ever print stuff from communists. So uh -huh. he was proud. Mm -hmm. And he said, yes, big mistake for him. Yeah. <laughs> he invited me to come to Leipzig to the East German trade fair. 
And what he didn't know was that you are not allowed to bring Western magazines into East Germany for good reasons, because then you keep people informed. I'm always coming back to, you need to see something, yes. and then you change. Mm -hmm. So I called his office, two months later said, it's printed. Am I still invited? Sure you are. And then I said, well, you know, there's this problem. I'm not allowed to bring you the copy. You need to inform the border that I'm allowed now to bring you the copy. And the officer said, okay, we will do that. I got the telegram with no number. Mm -hmm. So I put 300 copies of Innovatio into my car. I went in, next day I met him and I gave him five copies. Yes. And 295 I distributed among my friends in the churches. Six months later I used the same telegram because there was the next trade fair. I had 2,000 copies and I went on and on. That was not the only way why the wall came down, but it was one little Sure, I'm sure. Hole. And Thousands of the, actions the like SDGs that are exactly like that. That mm -hmm. is why I'm so full of energy. They signed it, and now let us make it come true. So your institute has created an index, and you use that index to hold uh, corporations and others accountable for achievement of the SDGs. It's been two years since the SDGs were signed. Tell us about the index, and then how you're holding people accountable and what kind of progress you've seen in the last two years. Um, I'm repeating basically what I did in, in 1987. We had to wait till spring 2017 to start with the index. Why? Because companies only publish once per year mm -hmm. their annual report. Well, the index is really brand new. Absolutely. We launched it on April 19th at the UN in, in New York uh -huh. um, because we had to wait until the companies were filing their annual report sure. for 2016. It would have been unfair to go and take a look at the 2015 of one course. because the heads of state signed in September. Right. So we had to wait for the 2016 annual report and that again takes two months, three months, four sure. months into 2017 until they really file it. What did we do? We didn't look into the financial part of the annual report because, as you know from accounting, every company, when they do their numbers together with the experts, uh, you only get 30 to 70 percent of the real value of a company um, represented in the annual report. Mm -hmm. So that's not a good place to look at. Right. What have they done? So what did but you look we at? look into the non-financials. We look into the text where the chairman tells his shareholders how he spent the money in the last year and what he's going to do in the coming years. Uh -huh. We look at the text the CEO explains to his audience, the shareholders, what he has done and what he's planning to do. We look into the text of this CFO, the chief finance officer, and we look into the section where the company explains what they have done and what they are going to do. Because this document is the only legal binding document that a corporate listed company is giving. Yeah, but from an analytic point of view, that document is really often a public relations piece that the company writes to present in the best possible light its actions to its shareholders and the public. So is that going to give you the kind of objective information that you can use to draw conclusions? Yes and no. Um, no, because an annual report for sure is not giving you 100% of reality what General Motors or BMW or Siemens, Siemens or, or any other of the blue chips are doing. Yes, for the very simple reason as it was a yes 
for this Minister of Science of East Germany 30 years ago. Uh -huh. Yes, because it shouldn't be PR. If Apple says we are paying the same amount to our female workers as we do to our male workers, and the chairman signs that in the annual report, every employee is allowed to sue Apple in case this is not true. That's the reason why you have thousands yeah, of regions, lawyers yeah. uh, who make their business mm -hmm. by advising uh, Tim Cook to not write anything in his annual report. So are Apple you is that red <laughs> in our index yes. because Apple is disclosing nothing, niente, zero, uh -huh. on how they treat their people, how they produce their products, they do nothing, no information, and therefore they are read. General Motors, Facebook, Google, all these largest companies which we analyze, the top three, 300, yes. they decide every year, are we going to disclose, yes or no. And the big surprise for us at the launch in New York was out of these 300, only 120 followed the example of Apple. The large majority, 180, in one way or the other, are explaining to their shareholders and to the public what are they doing in regards to education, what are they doing in regards to climate action, what are they doing in fighting poverty. Mm -hmm. That is the revolution. Oh, and what you're saying is because they're stating this in their annual reports, that that provides a basis for then holding them accountable Absolutely. for those claims that they're making. Absolutely. And that will be the work of the Institute? Exactly. And for the first time in history, we can move impact investing from negative screening. Mm -hmm. Now we move this negative approach into a positive. Right. I want to earn my money, but I want to do it with education or with health or whatsoever. So you can form now funds trading on the best of the best in health. Who is the best of the best? Generally, not, not in health or a particular sector, but if you look at these big corporate actors and their commitments to social impact and to supporting the achievement of the global goals, who do you see as the top performers, not just in rhetoric, but in action? Again, I can't talk about action. That would be not honest. Mm -hmm. I talk about rhetoric, but in a Greek way, really? legally binding. And oh. the number one is Randstadt. Randstadt. Randstadt is uh, the one of the leading companies in um, time. No, you don't hire people full time, but you oh, so oh, you get them from yeah, Randstadt, an, an, like an employment agency. Yeah, exactly. Or Volvo. What about Unilever? Because I, I see Paul Pullman. If you would ask me, Roland, now after 30 years in business, who would you recommend to talk to? I would say Paul Pullman, Unilever. Yeah. Unfortunately, he is listening too much to his lawyers, like Tim Cook from Apple is doing, so his annual report is not really cutting edge. Maybe um, you should so be following yellow. his Twitter account, because his Twitter account seems is cutting not, edge. Is <laughs> not legally binding. He can tweet whatever he wants. <laughs> we want to put change in place. So what we are doing is we give these data to pension funds and say, put 1% of your pension fund and invest positive into SDGs. Right. Because that's the only purpose of the Institute. By 2020, we want to have changed the financial markets that they have invested at least 20% of their money 
in sustainable SDG driven companies. So that would be their their pension funds primarily. Pension fu no, everything. Or, and so, what kind of commitments are you getting from the companies to actually follow through on the commitments? so that you might be able to achieve that target of uh, 20% invested in sustainable vehicles. I'm not talking with companies. I'm talking with those who are buying the stocks of the companies because the Wall Street is driving the change in the fastest way. If I would talk to Paul and all the others, I wouldn't achieve my goal by 2020. I need to talk to BlackRock to those who invest their money in these uh -huh. companies. Mm -hmm. The big investment banks. Exactly. I'm spending basically all my time talking with treasurers of states and cities. Yes. As well as with pension funds and others who decide yeah. and yeah. endowment managers. That is my target group number one. Target group number two is the kids. Um, so there's an end yeah. a fantastic group called Hopsports. Hopsports, yes. Uh, it's an American, um, Tom Root. Um, Tom Root, right. Exactly. So Tom... Who combines entertainment and sports, exactly. right? Exactly. And, uh -huh. and Tom reached out after we did the launch in, at the UN in, um, in April. He said, Roland, I'm just finishing the next school year's program, but I heard what you are doing. Please, let's work together and integrate your data and your know-how on the SDGs into my program. Oh, I see. So the kids, when they do 50 minutes their exercise, uh -huh. they will get games and other things where they learn about that the SDGs oh, exist. Yeah. But not only that they exist, but um, what it means, um, they will learn about our rankings. And you mm -hmm. know how seatbelts got um, implemented in America? Because kids learned about seatbelts and then the kids from the back seats were getting on the nerves That's of the parents. It's, I can say from personal experience that that is true. <laughs> Me too. I just came back from holiday and my Michelle and Annabella, they are six and three. And so I told Michelle, because she is now going to um, primary school, saying, Papa, what are you doing? And I can't tell her I'm doing index or that crap. So I told her, Papa is working that we no longer have plastics in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you this is working because Michelle is getting on my nerves every plastic she saw. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Roland, let me ask you another question about the Global Sustainable Institute. It has an SDG lab in it, is that correct? Michael is building the SDG lab in Geneva where he wants to invite people like you who are doing so many fantastic things around the SDGs. It is impossible guys like you and your team is doing that and we don't know about it. Let's have one place where we aggregate and where we collect all this information, where we do the networking mm -hmm. so we can become more efficient. From your media perspective, how, how do you see the lab helping to increase what people see with respect to these objectives and the work being done to achieve them? As I, as I said, I'm a fifth-generation journalist, and I love this profession. And what drives us is two things. We want to have exclusive access to data, trends, that's, that mm -hmm. makes us tick. And then we would like to have exclusive access to experts who are helping us explain to our audience these trends. So if you have an SDG lab with all the data and we bring the journalists in and we offer them exclusive rankings, uh -huh. what is the trend on breast uh -huh. cancer? What is the trend on oil? What is the trend on this? That is what drives us as journalists. 
And if you can keep the promise that you can give us data on a regular base, right. that is what we need. We have to do three things. First of all, we need to agree that the UN is only three, not 15 MDGs or uh, 17 SDGs. Mm -hmm. My grandma does not even know how to spell SDG. I've heard that before in these podcasts. We said three. And with the, over lunch, we agreed on the UN is peace, rights, well-being. Peace, rights, and well-being. Everything what the United Nations is doing, you can aggregate in one of these three uh -huh. baskets. Mm -hmm. Second thing is, I said, as we journalists are junkies in regards to data, you have to open your gold mine. Every individual UN entity, WHO, WTO, right. ITC, mm -hmm. you name them. Right. They have to open their database, not to everybody, only to academics. And then the third, I need 10 to 15 hours from those who want to be part of this perception change unit that they devote 10 to 15 hours a month talking with journalists. Mm -hmm. Public right. perception, media relations is nothing else than a relationship. I don't understand why so many CEOs or politicians think they can delegate that to PR companies. I think that that kind of interaction and representation is core to the role of leaders of organizations. Yeah. This has been a terrific conversation. We could go on and on. You've brought such insight into efforts that are going on around accountability, around definition, and around perception of the SDGs. So Roland, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, you can listen to previous episodes of the Deeper Look podcast and stay tuned for upcoming ones by subscribing to Deeper Look podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. And feel free to leave a comment. Love to get your feedback on this podcast and on other podcasts. I'm sure we'll have lots of comments on this one about perception and, and, uh, and media. And join us next month for another conversation. <laughs>